Welcome back to the program. The famed management consultant Peter Drucker said that culture eats strategy for lunch, affirming a long-held conviction that the culture of a company, even more than its smarts or its products, drive its success or failure. Part of that culture built into the DNA of every company is the work environment it provides for its people. We often see lists of the best places to work. Free food, massage, pets, and a beautiful campus are all contributing factors. However, research, behavioral analysis, and science can also tell us what makes a workplace effective, productive, and innovative. That's where my guest, social psychologist Ron Friedman, picks up the story. Ron Friedman is an award-winning psychologist and founder of Ignite80, a management consultancy that teaches leaders and their teams evidence-based practices for building extraordinary workplaces, and he's the author of a new book entitled The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron Friedman, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. We often think when we think about the best places to work, we often think about these lists that come along all the time, and it always seems to be the external perks, the free food, the campus, the massage, all the accoutrements that go into the workplace. But as you talk about, creating an ideal workplace is indeed a lot more than that. That's right. And, uh, you know, I think certainly perks have their place and they can be a very effective tool for attracting talented employees to join your company. What I, won't, I don't think they'll do is keep them engaged once they arrive. Uh, what people are really looking for when they come into a workplace are to have really the same sort of psychological needs that they're looking to have satisfied in different domains in their life. And those are the needs for competence. So feeling like you're good at what you do and having the ability to grow your skills, feeling like you're connected to others in a meaningful way, and finally feeling autonomous in the work that you do. And so to the extent that organizations can get better at fulfilling employee psychological needs, they're more likely to get their best performance. And when we think of these things that you've just detailed, are they the same across generations or are there different balances and different weightings that go into it? For different generations? You know, that's a very interesting question. I, I, there's been a lot discussed about are millennials different than uh, boomers and so on. And I think a lot of the differences that do exist to some extent are interesting, but I think that we, our commonalities are a lot more prominent. And so we all have the same psychological needs. And we have, this has been, been documented in research for decades uh, throughout different regions of the world, different cultures, different age groups. All people are looking to have the need for autonomy, competence, and connectedness fulfilled. And I think that a lot of the differences that you see are ultimately have more to do with differences in where someone is in the life cycle than where they are as a function of, of, um, gener of uh, generation. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the nexus between the culture of an organization and the, the physicality of its workplace and what you've seen in that well, our physical uh, surroundings have a profound impact on our mindset. It's one of the things that is often overlooked in an organization. Uh, you often see people who are in a sales role versus accountants versus PR people. They're all kind of given the same uniform space. And what I argue in the book is that there's a lot that psychology can teach us about how where we are physically can impact the way we think. And if you are um, truly looking to engage people, what you should do is think about the tasks that they're going to be doing on a daily basis and then develop a space that actually enables them to do that more effectively. 
And what I see in a lot of organizations is people end up feeling like they have to either come in before 9 o'clock or, uh, or before 8 o'clock or leave, or, or leave after um, 7 or 8 o'clock at night because that's the only way for them to actually get work done. And so I think there's something that is deeply troubling when um, there's something deeply wrong with the design of a workplace when the only way for an employee to feel productive is to physically leave the building or stay after hours. One of the things that we're hearing a lot about in terms of offices today and physical space, and I think there was an article in the New York Times last week about this very thing, that open workspaces and even moving beyond cubicles, situations where nobody has an assigned place or an assigned desk, is really becoming the norm in tech to a large extent, but across the board, little by little. Talk about that and the impact you see that having. You know, it's interesting. I talk in the book about the history of the cubicle and how it came about. And in fact, the cubicle was an attempt to give people more privacy and more control over their workspace. Uh, at the time, we had open uh, mm -hmm. space offices where uh, they were called bullpen offices. where You had rows and rows and rows of desks that were stacked near one another, and no one had any privacy, and it was a problem. And so they came up with the solution called the Action Office. Robert Probst is the designer who came up with this, and the idea was to give people uh, a range of different environments where they had uh, two desks and a small table, they had an ergonomically correct chair, customizable combination that workers could use, and it ended up, what ended up happening is that that format was viewed as far too expensive, and so the empl employers looked at it and said, you know what we like here is we like the idea of separating workers. So come back with a different version of this when we can uh, separate people into different cubicles, and that led to the development of the Action Office 2, which we now know as the cubicle. And cubicles are terrible for, for a number of reasons, and so that's led people to go in the opposite direction, which is essentially to revert back to the bullpen-style office of open spaces. And ultimately, what the research tells us is that no single environment is ideal for every task. And so in the book, I talk about how a number of organizations are starting to do uh, a, use a completely different approach, which involves offering employees a range of different environments. So imagine, for example, that you come into an office, and you have your own personalized space, but then you also have a room you can go to to do focus work, a thinking room, and a different room that you can go to for getting creative insights, a room that's specifically designed to help you think about big ideas, and then another room where you can go and collaborate with your colleagues in informal social situations. And I, I think that to the extent that organizations are interested in getting people to produce their best work, they need to start thinking a little bit more carefully about how the design of a workplace is either facilitating or hindering people's performance. How does that relate to this sense of ownership of space, which we've always thought was an important part of the workplace environment? Well, I think it's critical to give people a space that they are comfortable personalizing. Um, in fact, you know, it's, it's a one of the things that we find in the, when looking at the research is that when we have the freedom to shape our environment, we experience a sense of general control, personal control. When we have that personal control, we have, we're more comfortable doing our work. We, and when we're comfortable, we have more cognitive resources to attend to the work in front of us. One study, in fact, found that um, you could you find a 32% increase in people's performance when you allow them to customize their workspace. And it's why a number of organizations like DreamWorks and Etsy are now providing new employees with a tiny budget that they can use to 
personalize their workspace because they recognize that to the extent that people feel comfortable when they're working, they're going to be more productive. One of the things that has been part and parcel of this open office idea and going back and moving away from the cubicle has been this focus on collaboration in the workplace today. You don't think that's all it's cracked up to be. Talk about that. Well, I think that there's certainly a role for collaboration. But the thing that often gets overlooked is that collaboration is just one aspect of productivity. So even if your work involves coming up with creative solutions, let's say you're working in, a, in an agency, a marketing agency, and you're part of the creative team and you're a copywriter, there are going to be times when you need instant communication and um, the ability to collaborate with others. But then there are times where you're going to need to go off and do some focus work. And trouble is that we're sacrificing people's ability to do quiet, focused, attention-involving um, work uh, it, for, um, in order to get more collaboration. And not all interactions are necessarily valuable. So to the extent that you and I are talking more often because there's not a partition between us, that's great if we're in a brainstorming session. But talking all day long and in, uh, in a place where you're constantly distracted both visually and acoustically, it's not going to position you to be successful. And ironically, when you are not able to get work done because you're constantly being distracted and listening to others, that makes you less um, likely to connect with people in a meaningful way because you feel frustrated. What about the tensions that are inherently a part of many workplaces? And, and how can they be obviated or at least turned into a positive force in, in workplaces? Well, we often think of great workplaces as having a place where everybody's happy and everybody gets along and collaborations are going on and, you know, it's, it's all rainbows and sunshine. But the reality is, is that having disagreements can, can actually be valuable in a lot of ways if you're not having disagreements and there's pressure on you to get along with others for the sake of appearances. And that means that you're probably not hashing through ideas in a very careful manner. And so there's a lot that can be gotten from um, intelligent debate. And so for an organization to get the best quality work, they shouldn't be promoting the idea that everybody's always getting along, but rather they should, um, they should reward people for bringing up concerns and for discussing them in a careful manner. Is there a difference in any of this that is relevant to the kinds of business or the kind of company that we're talking about? Does, is it different, for example, in technology as opposed to, to various other kinds of business? Yes, I, it absolutely is. And that's one of the reasons why in this book I summarize thousands of studies and I give people a set of ideas that they can apply to the extent that it feels appropriate in the context of their company. I think that there are, there are vast differences. So if you work in a bakery, that's not the same thing as working in a law firm. Now, obviously, at the core of all this is having your psychological needs met, so feeling like you're competent, growing your competence, feeling connected to your colleagues, and uh, feeling autonomous in the way you, you do your work. That's going to be valuable no matter what your job involves. That said, the design of the workplace and to the, in the extent to which managers are rewarding different things certainly is going to vary depending on what the organization's ultimate mission is. Talk about the role of managers in shaping this workplace, in shaping the work environment, and how that's changed 
over the past 10, 15 years? Well, we work in a knowledge economy. And because we work in a knowledge economy, the idea of a manager providing their employees with a set of directives and saying, go do this, that's no longer quite as valuable uh, because it undermines people's sense of autonomy. So if you want to be effective as a manager today, it's really critical that you allow your employees to feel autonomous in the way that they do their work. And I talk in the book about multiple ways you can do that. One way is to present an assignment by taking a few moments to, talk, to provide a meaningful rationale about why the work that the employee is about to do is going to contribute to the organization and the importance of what they're about to do. And second is offering them um, an opportunity to provide input into what the process should be. So outline the outcome, but then having enough confidence that your employee is going to provide a smart, intelligent solution for reaching that goal. And to the extent that you allow people to feel autonomous in their work, they're more likely to be passionate about their job. Now, in the past, that wasn't quite as necessary because work tended to be manual labor. And so if you worked in a factory, it wasn't quite as critical to listen to what your employee had to say or invite them to um, direct the process because work was simple and it just involved effort. Um, it's no longer the case. And in fact, if you are looking to get people to do their best work today, it's critical that you provide them with autonomy, supportive experiences. In the work that you've done over the years with so many different size companies, what have you found to be or where have you found the perfect workplace? What's the ideal situation? Uh, ideally, what, what's the ideal company that you've seen? I think it's very difficult to evaluate a company uh, and its workplace experience from the outside. But what I can point to are a few practices that I've seen that I think are in many ways are ahead of their time. Um, one company that comes to mind is... Um, is the Boston Consulting Group, which has started monitoring paid time off, not for the purposes of making sure that their employees take more, uh, not for the purposes of, of making sure that their employees are uh, taking too much vacation, but for the opposite reason, for making sure that people are getting the opportunity to get away and restock their mental energy. Uh, you see a similar process with a company called Full Contact, which is a software company in Denver. And what they've done is they've set up a mechanism in place where people get a, a $7,500 bonus if they go on a vacation and they don't check their work email. And the reason they're doing it is because they realize that people are not computers, uh, we're human beings. And uh, we need the opportunity to restock our mental energy and disconnect if we're going to stay engaged. And in fact, studies bear this out. If you have employees who are working constantly over the weekend, and working over the course of their vacation, a year from now, they're likely to be less engaged than your employees who are actually getting an opportunity to recharge their batteries. What about the fact that the anxiety level often goes up precipitously when somebody is not checking their email and is disconnected? That's a great point. And I think that uh, there is, you know, I can tell you for myself, if I'm going on vacation, I'm not checking my email, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going to be concerned about that. And what I would recommend is rather than setting stringent rules about when employees should and shouldn't be checking email, um, I recommend providing them with, uh, first of all, educating them about the value of recharging, and then critically, having managers model that behavior. Oftentimes, you have organizations that talk about work-life balance, but then, uh, you know, when 
the uh, end of the day, the manager is still sending emails at 11 o'clock at night or over the weekend. And ultimately, it's the behaviors that get reinf that reinforce the cultural values. It's not what the manager says, it's what they do. And um, one possible solution that people can start using is to um, use some of these programs, like for example, Boomerang, which is a program that's available for free on Gmail that allows you to write an email and program it to go out during regular work hours so that even though you're working at all hours, you're not sending the message to other people on your team that you're expecting them to do the same. Talk about this work-life balance issue in the context of, of the workplace environment because it does seem there's a disconnect here. A lot of the things that we're seeing, particularly in, in Silicon Valley, particularly in technology companies, is the effort to make the work, workplace more like home, more comfortable, the, the kitchens, bringing pets, all the perks that we started talking about at the beginning of this. The object seems to be to eliminate the membrane between work and home. And it's very hard to, to imagine this conversation about work-life balance when the ideal workplace seems to be one in which that differentiation disappears. Right. And in the best place to work, in fact, I argue that a lot of these companies in Silicon Valley are ahead of their time, and I would encourage more organizations to do the same. The reality is that work-life balance is no longer possible. Right. We live in a world where we all have access to work at all hours and at all places, and certain aspects of work can be addicting. We get a squirt of dopamine every time we, look, we find a, a, a new email in our inbox that leads us to be curious about what's in there. Um, and it's critical that if you're looking to build a great workplace and get people to be passionate about their work in a sustainable way, that you invite them to look at work, to, to, you invite them to um, to work in a fashion that allows them to integrate work and life rather than treat them as separate entities. And what I mean by that is we often have work interrupt our personal time and our family time, and we're, for some, we're, we're okay with that. And, but if a, an employee has a personal matter they need to take care of during work hours, we don't look at that quite as kindly, and I want to raise the question of why. Why is that that we don't empower employees and say to them, you know, we, we, uh, we've hired you because we recognize that you have um, a, a skill level and a level of responsibility that we trust. And so here are the goals that we anticipate you meeting, and it's up to you to figure out the best way of using your hours. And I suppose as more millennials that understand this better move into management positions, we're going to see more of that take hold. You know, I, I do... Uh, it's hard to say, right, because we don't have the data to, to say yes or no. And uh, everything that I try to write about is based in, in, uh, in empirical studies. Um, but I, I do feel like more and more people are starting to recognize this. And it's, it's obviously because of the, so on the one hand, because of the flexibility we now have. But on the other hand, it's the other side where work has become so accessible that I think it's going to become a growing concern uh, in the next few years about people burning out. And it, unless you allow people the flexibility to integrate their work life and their family life, um, they're not going to be performing for you as well as they could. One of the things that you talk about in the workplace is something that I know a lot of people will, will respond to, and it's the idea of, 
brainstorming and focus groups and, and, and it being a part of the workplace today. And, and frankly, it's uselessness in most cases. In the book, I talk about the benefits of, I, I distinguish between conscious thinking and unconscious thinking and um, how when we're trying to solve a difficult problem, um, oftentimes what we do is we'll set aside an hour for uh, thinking about it in a very careful manner. And as it turns out, conscious thinking and deliberating in that way isn't always the best way of finding the best solution. And the reason for that is because when we're thinking about a problem consciously, we tend to have a very limited focus. And so we're able to, to attend to one aspect of um, the information that we have without seeing the bigger picture. And so sometimes it's beneficial to have psychological distance, take in all the information that you have about a problem, and then go do something completely different by taking a walk or going to exercise or even working on a different work task and then returning to that initial problem 30 minutes later. What we find is that unconscious thinking can often lead to better decisions because the unconscious has unlimited bandwidth. And so, if, for example, if you are looking to decide where to open up your next office, you might uh, think about the uh, different advantages of having um, the different features. So there's location, there's size, there's uh, the layout. There are all these different features to that office. And what happens is when you're thinking about it in a conscious way, you end up fo focusing on one aspect. Like, for example, you might think, well, the lobby is really nice in that location. And lobby is not all that critical when you think about a workspace. Um, and so when we think about a decision in an unconscious manner, meaning we take in all the information, we distract ourselves, we go do something else, and then we return to that decision, um, we often have a more c clear solution because our unconscious thinking is processing all that information in a way that balances out all the features. Is that an argument for multitasking then? Um, well, multitask that's an interesting question. Multitasking... Um, that does not necessarily actually imply multitasking because you're, you are, you've taken all the information and now you've moved on to a completely different topic. Multitasking, the research tells us, is not all that useful because what we're doing when we multitask is rapidly switching between tasks and that ultimately makes us less productive over the long term. And in fact, there's research showing that people who multitask very frequently are more likely to be depressed and part of it is because uh, we, we end up making so little progress, even though we're constantly feeling stressed, that that undermines our sense of well-being. What do you expect the workplace of 10, 20 years from now to look like, based on what you're seeing, the research you've done? Where are we, where are we headed? Well, about, there, there are several things that I see. I think, for one thing, I think we're going to get a lot smarter about applying the science to building a better workplace and be more analytical in making our decisions. So, for example, there's a question of whether or not we should allow certain employees to encourage people to telecommute or provide them with flexibility, and we don't need to guess anymore because we have data that says that that is valuable in certain contexts. So I think companies are going to be using data a lot more um, in, a, in, a, in a lot more um, disciplined fashion to make decisions. The second thing I see is I think we're going to get a lot better at timing the tasks that we do to time of day. And so some of the research I talk about in The Best Place to Work is on how we're better at doing focus work early on in the day in the morning, but we're a lot better at creative tasks in the afternoon. And I think in, in, 
to be consistent with that first point is we're going to be a lot better at using the data to decide how we should more carefully use our time of day so that we're getting more out of our hours. And the final point is I think that we're going to see a lot more companies encouraging people to disconnect. And I mentioned a few examples of this, of uh, companies that are paying people and, and rewarding them to take time off. I think we're going to see a lot more of that because if you want people performing at their best, you need to ensure that they have the opportunities to let their minds and their bodies recover. Dr. Ron Friedman, his book is The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 